0: Welcome to the Grow Bold with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most. To help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristram Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory, Clickability,
1: and am a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy.
0: Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is growing bold and overcoming adversity. And our guest is Professor Mujid al Madiras, the refugee surgeon who has changed medicine and thousands of lives. In this episode, we'll hear how he escaped the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq and has gone on to become a game changer in the world of orthopedic medicine. And along the way, he collected the New South Wales Australian of the Year gong for 2020. Professor al Madiris, welcome to Grow Bold with Disability. Thank you very much for having me here. Now, as I said, you were born in Iraq under the Saddam Hussein regime, and you are a second-year med student when the Gulf War started. What was it like living under that regime? So, living under
2: the Saddam Hussein regime was a classic um, uh, environment of um, autocratic regime where people uh, live under a dictatorship. And... Um, it's fully controlled by military. Uh, there are martial laws um, everywhere, uh, checkpoints every kilometer or two, and um, people kind of um, have to live in um, under military control. And um, you don't know when you go outside your house when, if you're ever gonna go back in. Um, there's always fear. Uh, there's always uh, the sense of insecurity when, um, you know, you lie down on uh, your pillow at night. Uh, you wonder when someone will uh, knock on your door and open the door and take your family away from you. Um, so that was um, as simple as uh, I can describe it. Um, mm in general terms, if you mind your own business and you don't interfere with Saddam's regime, you can you can live your day-to-day life. Um, Baghdad was very cosmopolitan city. It was pretty much like Sydney. Um, and life um, was very vibrant. Uh, but um, there is always a sense of um, insecurity. There is always a sense of, um, uh, you know, the big brother watching you. And... Um, you can't, obviously, uh, have freedom of speech uh, because you don't know who's recording and you don't know uh, whether your cousin or your brother is going to be dopping you.
0: So what was the catalyst that forced you to flee Iraq?
2: So I was a, a junior medical officer at Baghdad University Hospital and um, I never thought about leaving Iraq. I was very comfortable with the... the uh, living um, um, arrangement that I had, especially that uh, um, I have my family, I have my friends, and, um, and believe me, despite all what I've said, um, people can um, um, live in these circumstances as they would prefer uh, to live, um, uh, um, you know, uh, among their friends and among their family and uh, and uh, uh, in the environment that they grew up in, um, because that's what they're familiar with, and um, no one would um, prefer to face the unknown and and, and escaping um, um, for a better life because um, it's always the what you know, even if it's evil, it's much better than the unknown because it may be worse. Uh, so, um, I was similar to um, the majority of uh, people living in Iraq. Um, um, you know, content with what we've got, and we're just um, happy that we can survive. Um, but uh, all of that changed all of a sudden when uh, I was a medical um, uh, uh, doctor in. in going to the surgical uh, theatres and all of a sudden I was confronted with um, three busloads of um, army deserters um, escorted by Republican guards and Ba'ath party members. And They um, ordered us to uh, abandon the elective list and start mutilating these army deserters by chopping the ears off. And, um As a result of that, uh, everything changed. The head of the department refused openly, so they basically the Republican guards dragged him to the car park and in front of everybody they executed him um, by putting a bullet in his head. And then they turned to the rest of us and they said, well, anyone share this man's view, come forward, otherwise proceed with our orders. So I faced the most challenging decision in my life, should I uh, obey the commands and live with guilt for the rest of my life, and um, um, should I refuse and end up with a bullet in my head, or should I run away? And um, I decided to escape. And um, from there onward, my life changed upside down, and I um, moved from being a um, reasonably comfortable young uh, doctor living. Um, in Iraq to um, uh, someone who's escaping for his life and running away from the authority. And if I uh, was going to get caught, uh, I would be executed.
1: Wow. Goodness. And t- tell us about that, um, the ideal of escaping, the, the challenges in, in coming to Australia. So um, when I... Um, uh, Escaped.
2: I had no plan, obviously, and I just, <clears throat> the first um, initial move, I had to leave the immediate danger, which is the hospital itself. And um, I had to stay in the um, uh, female toilet for five hours. They felt like five years uh, in a small cubicle. And I was wondering when um, people come and open the doors on me and find me. Uh, Then I went to um, uh, the outskirts of Baghdad in a farm um, in the western part of Iraq and had to hide there for several days until my family managed to uh, uh, prepare um, a passport for me um, which to date I don't know whether it was legitimate or fake and uh, um, they uh, gathered a significant amount of money and um, basically they smuggled me through the borders to Jordan Jordan was not safe, Um, and the only place that um, would give an Iraqi national with half a decent passport a visa was Malaysia, and um, Malaysia would give Iraqi nationals 14 days visa to uh, enter a course of English language, Um, so I took that trip, and then sequence of events led me to um, end up on a leaky boat that's not seaworthy bound to uh,
0: Christmas,
2: Christmas Island in
0: Australia. And I think from there you ended up at the Curtin Detention Centre in in Western Australia for about 10 months, is that correct?
2: Yeah, so um, um, I spent five days in Christmas Island uh, under the control of the federal police and then from there we were uh, taken by chartered planes to uh, uh, Derby to Curtin Detention Centre, which is a RAF base. Um, and um, basically... Uh, the minute we entered the detention center, everything changed. Um, the first thing that happened to me, I was stripped off my human identity. I was um, um, marked with a permanent marker on my shoulder with a number 982. That's the name that I carried till the day I was released from the detention center. Um, I was um, treated like an animal basically. Um, we were locked um, behind barbed wires um, in small compounds uh, within the main compound. We were head-counted four times a day. Um, and um, obviously, I was very outspoken and I couldn't shut up, so um, I caused a lot of problems. <laughs> um, and as a result of that, I was singled out to be a troublemaker and a ringleader. And um, because of that, I had to spend significant time in prison in many uh, Western Australian jails, including maximum security prison. i tell you something, um, just to give you a, a prospect of how bad was the detention center, comparing the detention center to the jail, the jail was like heaven compared to hell. And um, the jail system was brilliant. Um, I was treated like a human being. I was fed very well. I had access to a telephone and uh, um, I was treated with
1: dignity. And how did you not lose hope during this time? What, what what kept you going? What focus did you have? Look, I must admit,
2: I mean, there were some really tough times. And uh, I talk about um, the Wheel of Fortune and your position on the wheel, um, change from day to day. And uh, one day you may be on top and another day you may be at the bottom. Um, and at some stage, I was uh, really uh, down, Um, Especially when the Department of Immigration decided to put me in the solitary confinement, which was called um, the hotel. I spent 40 days in a box, uh, two and a half by one and a half meter mattress on the floor, no pillow, no sheet, so I don't hang myself or suffocate myself. Um, a, a hole in the door of 20 cent piece that I can see the outside environment, which is the main compound detention center. And I was locked in for 22 hours and I could um, uh, um, go outside that box for uh, uh, two hours uh, basically um, in the day. It's something that you cannot imagine that could happen inside. Mm. Um, a country like Australia, but it did happen to me, and um, um, uh, that time was really tough because um, every time I asked uh, the guards when they bring food, um, which is uh, basically a colorless noodle and a, and a minced meat um, in, a, in a plastic can, uh, a, a plastic container. Uh, every time I ask them, what what am I doing here? And they say, oh, we're rehabilitating you. And um, I read many uh, kind of psychology books and I've never seen this kind of rehabilitation ever mentioned. But uh, but these times were, were really tough days. And I thought, is this going to end? Um, especially that my name miraculously dropped from the... Uh, or my number dropped from the list and I didn't get uh, any legal representation. So uh, the whole um, detention center uh, detainees were processed and I was waiting there. Um, But eventually, I mean, things changed. I had to go on a hunger strike to um, ask them to release my only companion that I brought with me, which is the anatomy book, Last Anatomy. And, um, And they gave it to me in return to break my um hunger strike and um um and I uh, looked at uh, the bright side of in, there, in everything there is a bright side and that's I'm stuck there and inside this box for 22 hours I might as well use time to study and I tell you what I read this book from cover to cover again again and uh, as soon as I was released from the detention center I um Set my um, um, qualification exam, and I passed uh, with very high marks in anatomy.
0: So, <laughs> so you can get some something out of it. Yeah, the hard way to learn, though, that's <laughs> for sure. But it wasn't all it wasn't all smooth sailing once you got out. You applied for over a hundred jobs. Is that correct?
2: Well, I applied for more than 100 job, and, uh, and basically I um, I started knocking on doors as soon as I was released um, of every hospital I could find, and um, I used to get the same rejection of, um, you know, go and learn English, sit the exams and uh, recognize your qualification, and then uh, you, we, we may employ you. Um, but then um i never lost hope uh, i went to this place called the centerlink uh, and uh, um and i uh, told the uh, officials there that i'm looking for a job and they said to me well you have to write a cv and that's how you do it so i figured out that uh, you know this is the way to do it in this country and um, i learned um, how to tick the right boxes and i did that and within a very short period of time, I managed to um, find an employment. I mean, the first job I did in Australia was toilet cleaning, and I enjoyed it. I didn't have any problems with that. And then I thought I would um, uh, try to work in what I know better, which is medicine. So uh, so I managed to get a job in the medical field, and I can tell you... um, um um, I felt very bad that I spent taxpayers pay as money. Um, I was released on the twenty sixth of August two thousand, and I received my first paycheck. J- paycheck as a doctor on the first of November two thousand. So w- with my first paycheck, I took it back to the Centrelink, and I wanted to give it back to the government. <laughs> and they thought that I'm an idiot. <laughs> but,
0: I think I think you man. paid it all
2: back. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so there you go. I mean, I started climbing the ladder very quickly, and and to be honest, um, uh, the last thing I wanted is to remember the past, and I just wanted to move on. I wanted to start a new life. And I wanted to forget about everything in the past, and and you know, people that come on a boat and uh, get called uh, queue jumpers and asylum seekers and you name it. Um. They get traumatized and they feel ashamed um, of um, this um, uh, stigma that they get um, um, attached to them, and um, and I was one of them. And uh, but then I had this wake up call um, because I I just wanted to move on and didn't want to remember anything. Um, but then, um, you know all doors opened in front of me and uh, started climbing the ladder very quickly and um, And I thought that everything becoming pink and um, uh, all of a sudden I had this wake-up call when in, in my um, welcome dinner uh, to join the most prestigious um, training program in, in Australia which is orthopedic surgery uh, to my face, two of my colleagues um, who joined the training program at the same uh, time, um, they said it to me um, that isn't it a shame that uh, the Australian training program um, in orthopedic surgery had dropped that standard so low to allow a refugee to be one of us? And that was a turning point in my life where. I thought that, um, you know, there is no room for this kind of people. There is no room for hate. There is no room for discrimination. And I decided that I turned my back again to the past and, uh, and face the past and, and basically um, work as hard as possible to, um, you know, fight for people uh, dignity and um, um, tolerance and acceptance.
1: And it's such an amazing job you've done at doing that. Can you explain to us what an osseo integration prosthetic limb is and how it works? So um,
2: people, when they lose a limb, whether it's an arm or a leg, uh, they historically... Um, since fifteen twenty nine, uh used to be fitted with um, a bucket or a socket mounted prosthesis, which is just something that wraps around the uh, limb and um, and you have to walk with it and it's attached to a, uh, to a prosthesis. Um, and it's like Captain Featherhook, um, um, and it's basically hasn't changed for all that time. Um, integration surgery is a completely revolutionary uh, uh, technique or technology, and that's by um, integrating uh, the body with a robotic arm or leg. And the way we do it is by uh, inserting a high tensile strength titanium implant into the residual bone and skeletally attaching um the human body with a pr- myelectric prosthesis or a computer robotic uh, arm or leg through a small opening in the skin and reorganizing the muscles and the nerves to operate this myelectric prosthesis and uh, creating what's very similar to the Terminator of robocup basically. <laughs> so it's.
0: Where, where, now, you, you've worked in all the medical fields, obviously working up through the ranks. Why, why the passion for orthopedics? Uh, look, I always um, um, grew
2: up in, in, in a war-torn region where I've seen a lot of disabled people, a lot of people who, when they lose a limb or, or an arm and they get deformity or significant um, trauma to their extremity, they become deformed and they become disabled. And that lead to uh, significant impairment in their capacity to um, live, work, um, earn living and integrate with the society. So I always wanted to do reconstructive work to build these people back again and give them the capacity to function. So function is life. Mobility is life. And that's why I wanted to do um, reconstructive surgery. The only way to do it is through doing orthopedic surgery, basically. And um, I mean, I could have done uh, plastic surgery, but that's very limited uh, to um, the hand area, or uh, with all due respect, I don't mean to um, discount plastic surgery, but uh, you know, you have to go through a lot of, uh, there there is a reconstructive part and there is cosmetic part. And Mm. um, I thought that with orthopedic surgery, it's more involved in integrating the bone, the muscles and the um, the, um, uh, tendons and nerves, so it's more inclusive, basically.
1: Right. Sure. And as an orthopedic surgeon, you could have lived quite comfortably in Australia, working here. But you've chosen to go back to Iraq, travel to the Middle East, Southeast Asia, um, helping uh, a number of people. Why? Why that? Um, that that drive to go back and travel the world, helping people. As well as Look uh, to
2: to be very very clear. I do live very comfortably here in Australia, and I do <laughs> have very good um, living and um, and I earn. Oh, well, I used to. Now with the coronavirus, we shut. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, I used to earn very um, high income and, and very good living. And a lot of the work I do here in Australia uh, involved joint replacement surgery, like hip replacement, knee replacement, and believe me, it's boring like bat shit. <laughs> but it pay the bills, and it's uh, um, uh, so I'm not in uh, no way denying that. Uh, but um, as I said to you, I decided that I did dedicate a significant portion of my time, which is more than third, uh, to giving back, and giving back doesn't mean going only to Iraq or the Middle East or Southeast Asia. Giving back means uh, giving back everywhere, including here in Australia. So I do a lot of pro bono work here in Australia. I do a lot of charity work here um, for people who cannot afford surgeries and... um, A significant portion of my work here in in Sydney is for people who um, are in financial difficulty and and, and who have significant disability um, in the community. And unfortunately and sadly, I could say that we do have people who are not capable of paying for uh, the bills, Um, even here in Australia. I do work in developing countries, and I do work in developed countries. I um, help British soldiers, I help Germans, uh, uh, Dutch, um, Swiss, South African, and and I do work in developing countries, or what do you call them, semi-developing countries like America. Um, that's a joke by the way uh, but, um, <laughs> and and I do um, enjoy working in places where people um, uh, need the service most in like Southeast Asia and in, in places like Cambodia, uh, Vietnam where they have a lot of landmines um, Iraq is um, is another place where I can function to the max, because I um, can relate to the people, I can speak the language, and um, uh, that gives me a huge advantage of um, maximizing my output. And, um, uh, but it's not, um, people sometimes they say, oh, you want to go back to your homeland. I don't discriminate, I don't differentiate. Um, I treat everybody as a human being, and I've been to, uh, places like um, uh, you know Lebanon Israel Jordan and um, I was invited to go to Syria but it's very unsafe there um at the same time I was invited to go to Iran and Saudi Arabia and you can see they all contrast countries they're all fighting with each other mm. um, it's um so I don't I don't discriminate. Um, human beings are human beings, and if they need help, uh, they all equal. Um, uh, to be honest, um, yeah. so um, and I quite enjoy it. And. Um, uh, but at the same time, I do enjoy flying first class, and I do enjoy, um, you know, the luxury life. And I have a big boat, and I have uh, a fancy car. But I pay for that from my own pocket, and yeah, I don't take no. any uh, money from anybody else. <laughs> so, so um, it is what
0: it is. I work hard. Fair enough. Now, with um, we have spoken about osseo integration. What's next in the world of prosthetic limbs? Are we just going to be seeing sensory touch pads and so forth? Uh, look, I'm, we're working very, very um,
2: heavily on uh, new technology, which is not just um, hooking up the, um, uh, the robots, but giving people sensation and feeling back in the uh, uh, prosthesis. And uh, and there is a, a new technology called Target Muscle Innovation where uh, you kind of make these robots mind control prostheses and give them the feedback where people can can touch the this uh, the object and can feel it Uh, that's one area the other area is that which is a field that i will work on in the future or i am working on now and i started doing couple of cases already uh, where uh, people who are wheelchair-bound due to spinal injuries um, and um, and people who are paraplegics and uh, quadriplegics to give them the mobility back and I managed to get the first um, t4 paraplegic the ability to walk again by giving them uh, this technology and um, by working with endoskeletons and exoskeletons. And um, this is a field that is massive and can transform a lot of people's lives. And um, especially working with um, uh, uh, neurological disorders, not just injuries. Um, So that's another field that we're working on. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, the world is facing this Disaster with the with the virus, and that put everything on hold. And um, so I'm back now, moved from doing all this work to, uh, you know, being um, a foot soldier and in uh, fighting this virus, where we just do, um, you know, ordinary uh, trauma work and uh, and um, back to doing fractures and things like that, which I enjoy as well. Work is work, and it's respectable regardless of what you do. Oh,
1: great. Right, and you you touched on mobility there briefly. I'm a power chair user myself, and the, the idea of being able to walk again is just mind blowing to me. What was the that um, gentleman with T four paraplegia? What was his response to being able to walk again? How did what was his reaction? Well, look,
2: it's very interesting. He's one of our um, uh, heroes, one of our soldiers, uh, and he had an injury as a result of parachuting accident, and um, unfortunately. Uh, he lost the ability to um, uh, to walk, and uh, he's par- paralyzed from um, you know the t four down, and um, and when he came to me, he said, "I want to run," and I said, "Look, um, all I can do for you is to take your legs off and um, give you these two prostheses and um, and make you um, easier to manage, to transfer, and for hygiene." And I never thought that. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, this can expand, and and then from there we started working together on possibilities and um, and reinnovation and things like that, and um, and he proved me wrong, and he came walking to the uh, and we we opened this uh, kind of horizon that we were completely oblivious to, and um, I mean it's just it's it's way outside the box. Uh, and it's the you know the idea of amputating someone to let them walk is completely mm. wrong, <laughs> and mm. um, I, I mean it can be seen as uh, uh, you know a, a maverick work, um, but you know, uh, I look at the bright side of it is that he wouldn't lose much because he's not going to use these legs mm. anyway, and if he gets any mobility from it, and he is much better functionally um, he hasn't run yet but uh, but he uh, put himself up for the Invictus game and um, I have uh, five of my patients that are competing in the were supposed to, well they competed in the last Invictus game and and I have several of my patients were supposed to be competing in the Le Hague Invictus game which unfortunately was cancelled
0: yeah incredible well the technology is all there Munjib this podcast is called Grow Bold with Disability as you know what does living a bold life mean to you Look <laughs> I think it's uh, I get bored very
2: quickly and um, and um, uh, I don't know, it's in my nature that I always live on the edge. Um, but, um, but one thing I learned from my father is, um, is that uh, as long as you have a calculated risk and uh, as long as you do your own research and you surround yourself by people who are expert in the field, uh, that uh, risk and pushing the boundaries can make a huge positive impact on the society because you're doing productive work. You're not doing something that is destructive. Um, so, um, you know, you need people. I, I strongly believe that you need people who are crazy like myself to push <laughs> uh, the uh, the boundaries uh, further. And uh, otherwise, we will still be, um, you know, uh, riding horses uh, till now. And, and, you know, like uh, bold moves like... Uh, uh, i call bold like the Wright brothers taking the first flight that's mm-hmm. a bold move because mm-hmm. uh, you know um and uh, and these people um um you know they deserve the gratitude for uh, for all humankind because they made things that were impossible possible for for us. And I don't claim that I'm one of them, but, uh, but I do my best to uh, help in, um, in you know um, pushing the, the boundaries and um, and keeping the wheel of uh, development uh, going. Um, but as I said, as long as you do it in a measured way and in a way that can benefit people
0: rather than cause harm, well, you might not be, you might be making people fly, but you are making them walk again. So you're as close as the right brothers, <laughs> as any of us are going to get, I think. So, Munjib, thanks so much for joining us today here on Grow Bowl with Disability, brought to you by Feros Care. And our listeners can find out more about Professor's work and his amazing books. Check these out, Walking Free and Going Back. All the links are provided in today's episode show notes where you can find those amazing books and more details about the professor. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Grow Bold with Disability. And if you like what you heard, then please take a few moments to pop over to iTunes and give our podcast a quick rating so we can continue these conversations and encourage people to grow bold. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia, and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold, and for over 25 years, Ferris has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, care.com.au.